Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We're seeing the deadlines for many vaccine mandates quickly approaching, and many are still resisting their shots or looking for exemptions. Religious exemptions are one way that people are seeking to get out of the mandates, but they may not be as easy to get as some may think. Employers have a lot of discretion when granting these. Employers have to provide a reasonable accommodation for these employees, but they can also probe whether a person's beliefs are sincere and deny if they think they are not. Many objections are based on the belief that the COVID vaccines contain fetal cell lines, which they don't. For more on all this, we'll speak to Andrea Shu, labor and workplace correspondent at NPR. So the right to request a religious exemption comes from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, that is the law that protects workers from discrimination on the basis of, you know, many things, including religion is one of them. So the federal government says that, you know, employers have to provide reasonable accommodations for the workers who have sincerely held religious beliefs unless, and there's a really big unless here, unless doing so poses an undue hardship to the company. And so that's, you know, it's a question like, what is an undue hardship? That's something that I've been exploring, actually. Yeah. And uh, because, you know, if you have to change the whole business model or, or workflow or something, you know, that's an easy way to say no at that at that point. So when it comes to these reasonable accommodations, you know, what does that mean? You know, right. what can on what basis can they start refusing? Right. So the, what the law says for religious exemption cases, the undue hardship, it doesn't like it doesn't have to be you rearranging your whole company. The actual language uses the word de minimis, which kind of means minimal. So how undue hardship is defined is more than a de minimis cost or burden on the operation of the employer's business. So think about it, more than a minimal cost. It's a pretty low bar. And, you know, lawyers I spoke to gave me examples, like if somebody's religious beliefs requires them to not work on Saturdays, and as a result, the company has to rearrange a bunch of people's shifts, that could be considered an undue hardship, and they could deny that person the accommodation of not working on Saturdays. Wow. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of power, obviously, on the employer side of things. I do want to get into the fact of, you know, employers can ask you about your religious beliefs. Uh, they can, mm -hmm. uh, you know, see if uh, those religious beliefs are sincere. And this is where it gets really interesting because, you know, we're seeing, obviously, there's a lot of misinformation that's all found on the internet. You know, a lot of people are saying that they have um, objections uh, to vaccines that use fetal cells in research, testing, or production. They don't want to be putting that stuff in their bodies. And this is right. where it gets very technical with the COVID-19 vaccines, at least. Yes, right. So that is a common reason that people are citing that they say, you know, vaccines are made using fetal cells. What public health officials have made clear is that the COVID-19 vaccines, I'll start with Pfizer and Moderna, they were used in the development and testing of those vaccines. It was fetal cell lines that were developed decades ago in a laboratory. And this is a common practice in pharmaceutical research. And then for the J&J &J vaccine, it's a little bit different. Different fetal cell lines were being used in the production of the J&J &J vaccine. But to be clear, none of these COVID vaccines contain any fetal cells. And that is uh, misinformation that is out there. But, um, you know, one of the CEOs I spoke to, CEO of a hospital 
in Arkansas. It's Conway Regional Medical Center. Matt Troop is the CEO. And, you know, he had about 45 requests for religious exemptions out of 1,800 employees, about 5%. They were all based on the fetal cell issue. He wanted to educate his workforce about this issue. So he uh, had his staff compile this list of medicines that yeah. have also used fetal cells this is really in research and development. Yeah, this is really great and shows how much you know, everyday products might be doing this. And if you're trying to cl claim an exemption just for this vaccine and you, you know, you use any of these other products, you really have no standing, it seems like. Uh, but but continue, right. explain this because yeah, I think so, it's well, interesting. That's exactly what he said, that he said, you know, if you use these products, if, well, if, if you're asking for a religious exemption, I want you to attest to you not using these products in the future or, you know, now. There are products like Tylenol, Ibuprofen, Tums, I think Xlax is on the list, yeah. Claritin. Pepto-Bismol. Um, <laughs> Pepto-Bismol, right. And he said, you know, people need to know that if they're going to be consistent in their beliefs, you know, this applies to a lot of different things. But she also mentioned employers can probe their employees on their, you know, whether their belief is sincerely held. I've also heard people, employers say they ask, do you have children in public school? Are they vaccinated? Because most places do have a vac vaccine requirement for public school. Yeah. Do you attend church? There, you know, there are all kinds of questions that the employers can ask. And I think generally up until now, most employers took employees at their word. If they say, I have a sincerely held belief, they would sort of move on to the next phase of trying to figure out if there was a reasonable accommodation. But I think with the COVID-19 vaccine, a lot more employers are scrutinizing the beliefs that are being put forth anyway. When it comes to the heads of these religions and stuff, when people are uh, trying to claim these religious exemptions, does that have anything to do with it? Because we've seen Pope Francis, you know, for Catholics, obviously, you know, he's said people should go out there and get their vaccinations. Does it matter if the, right. the, the head of your religious organization says yes or no one way or the other? Yeah, you know, Pope Francis said, you know, getting vaccinated is an act of love even. it Actually, when it comes down to it, it doesn't because it's really it's not really about what the religious institutions or leaders say. It's really about your personal belief. But it is interesting to see that, you know, even like the Christian Science Church, Christian Science generally um, counsels prayer rather than medical care. They do not have an official policy on vaccinations. They've said it's, it's up to the individuals to decide. So, you know, we do see a lot of clerical leaders out there um, encouraging people to go get vaccinated. There are some, you know, heads of churches who are saying the opposite, even offering to write letters for members of their church to, you know, support their case for religious exemption. Again, that, given what we've all, what we've discussed so far, right. you know, that may or may not, you know, help your case with your employer. It kind of, it's really in the employer's hands. Andrea Shu, labor and workplace correspondent at NPR. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Another development to be prepared for? Get ready for mail delays and price hikes coming to the U.S. Postal Service. In an effort to cut costs over the next 10 years, first-class mail will be slowed down and there will be less reliance on planes used to transport mail across the country. First-class mail used to be delivered in one to three days, and in some cases it will be delivered in one to five days now. Price hikes are also coming to stamps and package delivery just in time for the holiday season. For more on what to expect and who's affected most, We'll speak to Ellen Ionis, reporter at Vox. In terms of why this is happening, um, Postmaster General DeJoy, who took over that role last year in June, is implementing these changes or 
trying to implement these changes because um, he's predicting this $160 billion budget shortfall over the next 10 years. And the post office um, is already facing a lot of financial problems and insecurity. So, you know, there is a need for some sort of action and there are different types that we'll talk about later. But uh, right now, what's happening, as you mentioned, is this slowdown. So for lots of, well, let's say a majority of people, they probably won't notice any uh, changes with that first class mail. It'll still be delivered within that one to three day window. But for some addresses, especially in rural areas, that is going to expand to uh, between one and five days. So it is really a big difference if you're mailing a bill or waiting on your medication delivery or something like that. And the reason that'll happen, logistically speaking, is because the USPS wants to rely less on air transport then uh, and shift more of that to ground transport. The reason being air transport can be very expensive and it can be unreliable with weather delays and air traffic and stuff like that. So theoretically, it would be cheaper and more reliable to transport this stuff, this mail by by trucks yeah. or Ground transit. You know, and, and you we're talking about how many people would be affected by this, right? So about 40% of people, uh, 40% of first-class mail could be affected by this. But, you, you know, when you're talking about those rural people, people in uh, other communities, they're the ones that rely on the USPS the most. So unfortunately, it's going to target, uh, you know, it's going to hit them the worst. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so the thing about the Postal Service is one reason it's so great is because it does have to deliver to any address, any postal address that's in its mandate. And now private companies like FedEx and UPS, they don't have to do that. They can say, we're not going to deliver to PO boxes and things of that nature. And it's also expensive. The great thing about the USPS is it's relatively inexpensive. It's, you know, it's one of the cheapest ways to deliver mail in the industrialized world. And so it would really mark a big blow to especially rural communities and uh, a lot of the times tribal areas. This is a really important lifeline. We're going to see price increases on stamps. I think they might go up about three cents. Not too much, right? But they're saying that there could be price increases twice a year in January and July. And we're getting right into the holiday season where, you know, people are sending packages all the time, there could be price increases on on package deliveries. That's right. Yeah. Looking at about a dollar, which, you know, for some people isn't a lot, but for a lot of people that is significant. And if you're mailing, you know, several packages or receiving other packages, those costs are coming to individual individual people and and that makes things tougher and you're going to have to make decisions about what you want to send and when. So that can really add up for people. So what's in store for the Postal Service going forward? You know, we've been talking about how first-class mail is going to be slowed down a little bit, the communities it's going to be impacted by, but the Postal Service is already in a big money crunch. It doesn't look like it's going to get any better. The plan that Postmaster General DeJoy put forward has been gaining some criticism. He's getting some criticism. You know, it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon. That's right. And it's a difficult kind of pinch that the USPS is in because it 
is heavily regulated in terms of when it can increase prices and how much. It also has this pension fund that it pays into to help retirees, postal service retirees. And that is a, um, it's a big cost to the postal service. And the only way that that can change is through legislative action. It can't, the postmaster general can't say, you know, we're going to do things differently. We're going to change the way we pay into this, this pension structure. So, you know, unfortunately that is pretty static for now. There was some legislative action moving on that um, early last year, right before the pandemic hit. And unfortunately, that got shuffled to the side and it's kind of in purgatory now. It's a big cost and the U.S. Postal Service doesn't really have as much flexibility to do those price increases uh, like a private company would have. So that's a challenge as well. And there is an acknowledgement that, yes, prices do need to increase But there's a question um, in terms of kind of oversight of the USPS. There is a question as to whether the mail slowdown is really going to change anything in terms of financial, you know, making up for that loss. Ellen Iona's reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. On the entertainment front, Netflix's show Squid Game is a hit, and it's poised to become their most watched show ever. There are many reasons why it is hitting at this moment, one of them being social media. On TikTok, the hashtag Squid Game has been viewed more than 22 billion times, and it's perfect meme fodder. While the show was not heavily marketed in the U.S., it is a unique property, and Korean entertainment is currently huge in the States. For more on why Squid Game has taken off, we'll speak to Callan Rosenblatt, youth and internet culture reporter at NBC News. We see a show that appeals to a, a wide demographic, first of all. We have teens and tweens who are watching the game in Minecraft and Roblox. We have millennials and Gen Z who are memeing it online. We have Gen Xers who are started picking up on, on the, the trend and sort of hearing about how viral it is. And so we have both this... Uh, this intersection of both a show that is appealing to a wide audience and also the buzz online. I mean, the show was not really advertised in the United States and yet it has become a huge word of mouth, a huge viral sensation. And as you said, one of the biggest shows possibly ever on Netflix. So what we have here is both a a viral sensation that really appeals to a a wide audience. Um, Before we get into kind of the makings of why it's a great show, you've alluded to all of that already. Um, What are the executives saying about it, this hit that they have on their hands right now? Well, what the executives said, you know, right after the release of the show is that they are anticipating that this will be one of the biggest shows that they've ever had. And that it's, you know, even I believe they said it was nine days in, it was already on track to be, you know, an explosively popular show. Um, I spoke with Julia Alexander, who is um, an analyst, who is also an expert on this kind of uh, of topic. She's, she's very good with streaming services, and that's sort of her expertise. And she was saying that she is guessing that executives now, and this is this is her hypothesis, is that they are realizing 
how big uh, K-drama, so Korean dramas and K-thrillers, Korean thrillers, yeah. are going to be in the United States. And that, you know, we already see this inundation of, of K-pop and, you know, Parasite, which is a Korean film, was one of the biggest films in the world. So she is hypothesizing that the executives are clocking this and that they are realizing that this is where the market is going. And she anticipates that we will see many, many more uh, K-dramas popping up on Netflix yeah. and other streaming services as well. You talk about kind of the word of mouth and how it's getting around. You know, this show is so unique. It, it, it you know, in one way, a detriment, right? It doesn't have a natural fan base because it hasn't popped up before. But, you know, it, it's such a unique thing, right? Uh, let's play children's games and they have deadly consequences. And, and, you know, it's really taken people by storm on that front. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's such a unique concept. And I think that's part of the appeal, right? Like, it doesn't have a built-in fan base. This isn't something that was adapted from something else. But it's pretty rare nowadays that we see something that's a wholly exactly. unique idea. And we crave you know, that new thing. So it, that's why it's so good. Absolutely. It's it's something it's a, it's definitely a show unlike anything I've ever seen before. I would say even just the aesthetics of the show, just visually, the show is so striking, so interesting. And it, it really is captivating. It, it really is from top to bottom, from the plot to the, you know, to the character development, to the, the visuals. It's so unique. It's so yeah. interesting. And it really sucks you in. I mean, it it, it made me laugh. It made me cry. <laughs> right. it, you will you will have a whole range of emotions watching it. I think really you know it doesn't need that existing fan base to to pull people in and to see people talking about it online and talking about yeah. their experience with the show i think that is enough there was an interesting thing though in the article that a lot of people were were saying too. these so the accessibility of the show is great i mean there's dubs there's subtitled versions of it in many languages so uh, you know the accessibility to it is pretty good but some people were saying that you know some of the translations might not be the best and and there are nuances that people are missing yeah, absolutely. So there's been some criticism online that the English dub, for example, is missing sort of key details that don't necessarily impact the plot, but sort of they are clues that you're sort of missing about character development. For example, there was a line, and I, I don't remember the exact line, where one of the characters basically says, I'm not a genius, but I can figure things out. And someone basically, the translation is essentially something to the effect of, I didn't go to school, but I'm very street smart. And so oh, that right. sort of difference, you know, sort of changes how you perceive a character and what their backstory is. Now, I've seen other people say, you know, the translation is fine. And also when you're translating from another language, there isn't always a perfect translation. So you have to take everything with a grain of salt. Yeah. But it is exciting to see a show that has been dubbed in so many languages and has subtitles in so many languages when, you know, there it does seem to be among Americans. Sometimes they don't want to read subtitles. So to have the accessibility, <laughs> right. I think it has actually added to the popularity because you don't have to read subtitles in order to enjoy the show. Now, yeah. some people choose to, to enjoy it that way, too. And I think it's it's just as entertaining if you're listening to it in its original Korean and reading subtitles, but that at least gives everyone the ability to enjoy the show, depending on, you know, your accessibility level and, and how you want to consume it. Callan Rosenblatt, youth and internet culture reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.